Welcome to The Culture We Speak. I'm your host, Deanna Latimer-Hearn, and for this episode, I connected with Dr. Vishnu Nair to discuss capitalism in the field of communication sciences and disorders. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be sheep. For centuries, onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. Dr. Vishnu Nair is an assistant professor in the School of Psychology and Clinical Language Sciences at University of Reading, or UOR. He is trained as a speech language therapist and has worked in universities across four different countries, India, Australia, USA, and the UK. He co-leads the health theme of the Center of Literacy and Multilingualism at UOR. His current research utilizes critical methodologies in understanding the intersection between bilingualism, race, and disability. He is committed towards decentering English and monoglossic ideologies and emphasizes on engaging in research and clinical practice that is rooted in racial, linguistic, and disability justice. Thank you for being here and welcome to The Culture We Speak. Thank you, Diana, for having me. I want to start with a question about just your experience in different countries. I am an avid traveler. I know you just came back from vacation. But since you've worked in different countries, I would love to know what is your perspective on the practice um, in the profession across those different countries? Have you seen troubling patterns or anything of that nature in working in those different settings? Yeah. So I, st- I started my profession. I mean, my education was mainly in India. Um, so it took me a while to understand that a lot of what I learned in India probably would be a mix of the American curriculum and the British. So it's kind of like, you know, kind of an amalgamation of that. And I think the profession evolves right from from in those countries. So so I think those probably more American standards could be, you know, kind of like influence depends on how the curriculum is being involved as well. In Australia, I did not practice as a speech and language therapist, um, okay. although I have been uh, kind of, you know, privy to a lot of uh, practice that my colleagues were doing. But I did work in a speech and language therapy department. So in the, in my initial part of the career, I was mostly in a research environment. So I was completing my PhD. Um, so that's I was a bit divorced from the from the speech and language therapy world then. In the US and in the UK, I can say that I'm much more kind of aligned with what's going on in the profession. Um, I would say there are similarities probably in terms of our basic professional setup, uh, you know, what we do, etc. is pretty much the same everywhere in all four countries. What I did experience, though, is in the, the similarity, it's kind of like upsetting for me to say that is one of the kind of crucial and upsetting similarities that the profession is taught in a way that is totally uncritical in all four countries. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much like you are given the information and it's it's a medicalized field, medicalized as opposed to a medical field. So it's very much medicalized. Um, And then you take the information, you kind of like grasp it, you take the exams, you graduate, and then you go out in the workforce and you practice. And that's the troubling pattern. That mm-hmm. to me, I mean, yeah. apart from all the other, you know, other isms that we know that are troubling, racism, you know, all of that. Um, because you know, the issue of uncriticality is really, really important because it's related to everything that we see in the profession. Yes. In terms of how communication is conceptualized, very much from a very Euro- Eurocentric standpoint, very European ways of you know conceptualizing communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and that relates to how the prof- the origins of the profession and then how the pro- profession is propagated and uh, and spread in all over Europe and uh, to the US and to the global south after World War II, right? So it, it's kind of like very Eurocentric in that way, even in India. I actually would say the day when it's much more, the curriculum is much more colonized and Eurocentric and the yes. imposition of standard ideologies there, it's much more there. So, so that issue of uncriticality, which doesn't really look at the origin of the profession, which doesn't problematize the Eurocentric ideologies ingrained in the profession. So when we talk about racism, when we talk about linguistic justice, we talk about linguistic discrimination, we talk about everything that we talk about to achieve justice, suddenly there's a reaction because there's a history of 60 or 70 years of profession 
not looking at the way in which the pedagogy, the curriculum and our practice is mm-hmm. being kind of like not critiqued, you know. And yeah. and suddenly when there is a sudden criticality, people are resistant to that uh, because they think it's it's ideological. So so I would say the lack of critical reflection and lot of lack of criticality give rise to all the problems that we see in the profession. And that's what troubles me. I think about it as well. Um, When we look at, like you said, the global South and how we see a lot of situations where people are planting programs that sort of support this idea of speech language pathology, we see a lot of the perpetuation of this Eurocentric ideology that says, well, this is the way it has to be. One, this is the way it has to be taught. This is the way it has to be learned. And this is the way it has to be practiced, which then erases even the cultures that are then adopting these practices. And so that that is a big issue for me, um, especially in the work I do, which overlaps significantly with what you do. Um, mm. I feel like it just, it creates a lot of violence towards communities that are mm-hmm. Adopting something that they feel is going to be beneficial, but then essentially also is perpetuating harm against themselves. Correct. And I think I think you raised such an important point, which, you know, we were looking at a project on sustainability and people were talking about um, capacity building. And then I always wondered, like, you know, when people go and set up these programs elsewhere in the global south, mostly in Southeast Asia, you know, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in Nepal, in, in, in places, I mean, Nepal is in South Asia, but, you know, basically in Asia and Africa. To me, mm-hmm. that is an extension of a colonial project, right? Mm-hmm. It's the exactly. Which, yeah, it's an extension of a colonial and But but people just don't realize it. And I, and I, I actually think, do you even understand the societal structures of those places? Do you even understand the community? Do you even understand anything? So, and how can you just uncritically implement and go and set up a program there and call it, oh, wow, we are actually building capacity and then kudos to us, you know? So to me, and and that itself is is kind of like how imbalanced the power structures, you know? Mm -hmm. It's, 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 It's a very practical example of how manifestation of how the power imbalance between the global south and the global north um yeah. you know and that's a, thing, a, a program is a good uh, good example of how we should critically look at our profession yeah exactly and i'm sitting here just nodding at everything you're saying I've, i'm one <laughs> question in and i'm like yes all of this <laughs> so, all of this is what i i you know wanted to talk to you about um you know on this platform because I wanted to really amplify your voice and amplify your your perspective because you've seen so much and you've been in all these different settings and you clearly have, you know, and you've built a platform where you can actually address these issues and, and be critical of the profession. What you're saying sort of resonates with me because of the fact that I see a lot of the same attitudes in critical examination of the United States. Um, it has kind of gone on for so long that we accept these different practices and racism and issues and all the different isms and phobias that when you address that, when you call it into question or you say this isn't okay, it becomes an attack on the United mm-hmm. States itself mm-hmm. rather than on this this institution of racism and, and anti-Black mm-hmm. and anti-everything else. People take it as an, an offense against the nation. And it's mm-hmm. so ingrained in the nation that that's what happens. And I feel like when we do the same thing with the practice of speech pathology, communication sciences and disorders, people have that same vitriolic response to it because of the fact that it's so ingrained in the programs that we're in and it's so ingrained in the practices we do that it's hard to tease them apart. Mm. So when we become critical of the things that are harmful and that are violent towards minoritized groups, then it then becomes an offense to people who have you know, dedicated their lives to this study. Correct. And that can be problematic, but I, I do want to make sure we're centering the most the most marginalized, the most impacted, because obviously in the in the global south, we have people who are being erased by these programs. Um, in one of my podcast episodes, I talked to a professor who engaged in some work um, where she went to live in Malawi and did some work there. I'll say she has guarded perspectives on the idea of sort of this voluntourism. Yeah movement and I see a lot more voluntourism now but like you said when you move into a place or you go to a new culture you really have to be a student of that place you can't just walk into there and say these are the things you need to be doing correct yeah yeah I just want to respond to uh, to that earlier point that you had Mm -hmm. current point that you're mentioning about I'm not against people going and setting up programs uh, but you cannot you cannot just go there and set the programs as a savior because Mm -hmm. because if you are genuinely interested in the culture then what you need to do is you need to collaborate with people 
who are from that culture, from that country, from that local community, and let them be the driving force of, mm-hmm. of setting up something, understanding, um, understanding, you know, the the social structures, uh, understanding disability. All of that should come from the local people, and you take a backseat and provide resources like financial resources. You yes. know that yes. should, that should be the way. That should be the way. But that's not how it is done right now. It's a bunch of white researchers who go there. Um, they set up programs in Cambodia and um, you know, Malawi or wherever, um, mm-hmm. and then you will see capacity building, and then you see five articles published next day, right? So, yep. so that's what we are critiquing. That when we think about capacity building, we need to think about the many faults of different ways in which colonialism takes place and performs its its duties and actions, um, and how it is kind of like you know uh, swept into our profession is what is what I'm talking yeah. about. And the other point that you raised, that if you critique institutional racism, it becomes a critique of the US. It becomes mm-hmm. a critique of the of the UK and in India too that we see. Anytime you critique caste, anytime we critique the majority, it becomes a critique of the nation itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of dangerous fusion that identifies the majority culture with the mm-hmm. nation, which is the fusing of the majority culture with the with the nation is very dangerous. And that's how it gets enacted in our profession, especially in our profession, um, you know, language becomes a proxy for race. And then mm-hmm. so much of your work is is, is around respected dialect, right? So mm-hmm. the standard, uh, quote unquote, the white American English, which is the majority English, becomes the nation's language, therefore. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. why, so that dangerous fusion is is what we are trying to separate and say say that there are many languages within one nation. Um, yes. There are many nations within one nation, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea of a of a pluralistic society, which when you try to impose that kind of majority culture, it has repercussions on peoples who speak other type of languages, and obviously it has repercussions in terms of violence and. Mm-hmm. You know, um, all other kinds of things that we see in the U.S. in terms of January 6th or whatever, but even at a at a day to day, you know, from a linguistic point of view, mm-hmm. it has real violence towards people of color. Yeah, and I want to speak for a moment on this idea of language as a proxy for race yeah. that I see a lot of, especially as I do work in African American English. In the United States, we have laws that protect against discrimination of all different types. You know, I can't discriminate for you know, race or gender or all sorts of different aspects of a person's identity, but language is not protected. And language Mm -hmm. serves as a backdoor to then perpetuate all of those other isms and phobias that we say are against the law, because Mm -hmm. all those different aspects of our identities are encoded in the way we communicate. And so I can pick up on that based on interviews or interactions I've had with people. And then I can use that as my backdoor to say, well, I don't think this candidate's a good fit. Um, And I think that's what language has sort of become. And Mm. in a lot of ways, I see the work that we're doing as speech pathologists, as we call them here in the US, um, I see us really being more so policers of language and and policers of culture, because we're going out and we're enforcing those who quote, unquote, fall outside of this Eurocentric model of culture and language. Correct. Yeah. Uh, And I would also add, I mean, which is, I mean, when I say accent, it's kind of covered in language, but it is accent because in our field we separate it from yes. the way we, yeah, from the way mm-hmm. we look at language, right? And more so in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not enough to include language, in my opinion. It's also enough to, I mean, we need to think about accent in the way it is, yes. it is conceptualized. Yeah, I think so. I mm-hmm. think that's that's a major point. Thank you so much for your insight on these things. This is awesome. So I want to shift to the article that you, Farah and Cushing recently published, and that article critically examines standardized testing in speech pathology. Can you talk a little bit more about the race, disability, and capitalism and the relationship between those? And I'm laughing because this is kind of how we connected. I saw this article and I was like, yes, like all of it. Like, so sometimes you read things and obviously we're critical readers and critical, um, you know, researchers and all of that. But I was like, I just want to say yes, like... (laughs) This is accurate. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship between race, disability and capitalism? Yeah, no, I was laughing because that's such a broad, like, you know, topic like I, we could just sit here all day and talk about it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I think that article came because of, um, you know, I've been thinking about standardization 
you know, in a way that I thought, why is that our profession kind of do this kind of emphasis on standardized testing? I never made sense of it because to me, um, it cannot just it cannot just be that you know we just want to label something, we just want to label a disorder, and then you know it's it's simply not the mm-hmm. case, right? So there has to be kind of like multiple intersections of economic interest ingrained in that. Um, yeah. And where did that even come from? And obviously the article was published, um, you know, a, a group of colleagues were, um, you know, coming up with a special issue and we were invited to contribute. And I decided to write about standardization primarily because um, I was quite tired of seeing because um, I am a bilingualism researcher primarily. I was quite tired of seeing, even in bilingualism research, how much of this standard language ideology is being imposed and how bilingualism is being distorted. And mm-hmm. and that's the word, you know, and I yeah. would say infested with really standard language ideologies. Yeah. Um, and I was really disappointed by the state of affairs in the profession. But then it became an article that critiques standardized testing so it became bigger than bilingualism or it became bigger than that uh, because then obviously when you think about standardization you cannot think about standardization without thinking this race mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and disability yes. and the other aspect of it is capitalism which we mm-hmm. often forget that how this is kind of ingrained in that now combining all these three aspects was one major i'm just going to for the lack of better word i'm going to say one hell of a task yeah i'm sure yeah um so i was lucky enough to collaborate with um wada who is a dear friend of mine who's a practitioner um in london who uh, you know has been talking about issues of race and standard language ideologies in the profession and ian Cushin, who is a who's a, who's a friend and another colleague from education has been talking about standard language ideologies in the field of education Mm-hmm. So the one of the things that I started thinking about standardization is that I know that anytime there is fluidity in language, for what I mean by that is that if you look at our society, if you look at if you look at where languages work, how people behave around mm-hmm. us, right? There is such fluidity. There's such um, diversity in the way mm-hmm. people communicate. Now, even if you say, okay, I speak standard American English. Now, let's accept the fact that there is something called standard American English. Even there is such incredible diversity in that, what we call the quote unquote standard American English. Mm-hmm. Um, now I identify as somebody who grew up speaking or listened to or exposed to Indian English. And even there's such incredible variety in Indian English. And and even if you think about English, there are world Englishes, you know. So, mm-hmm. although, yeah, so, so, so there is so much diversity in the way we, we think about language. Now, when you think about standardization, simply speaking, it's just the exact opposite of diversity, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to quote um, my favorite author, Arundhati Roy here, and, and she talked about standardization or nationalism a while ago. It's, it's, it's you really have to look at where did this idea of standardization originate? And then you will see the origin of this is pretty much in the European nationalism, mm-hmm. where the same majoritarian politicians or people wanted to have one nation, one language, and mm-hmm. one culture, and one people. And that's where these ideas come from, right? So you see the rise of Nazism and fascism and all of that. Yep. And you, you can really draw a straight line to standardization there. And language mm-hmm. is often kind of considered to be the binding factor that kind of like unites this one language, unites one nation, right? So mm-hmm. that, that ideology is... So, so therefore, anytime you create a standardized material, you cannot deny the fact that the foundational logic comes from that. You might think, you may, you may not even relate anything with fascism, fascism mm-hmm. and Nazism, but, but you can't deny the fact that yeah. the foundational logic comes from that. Yes. Right. It does. So, and and that has not been even discussed. And then, when you really think about this foundational logic, this logic was used to colonize people all around the world, saying mm-hmm. that your bodies, 
and your language is are uncivilized. Yes. So that, that you will see right from the colonization of Africa, you can see the early colonizers' reports, notes. In case of India, I can say that Macaulay, who introduced English education, wanted to civilize us because our languages were um, very much inferior to English. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. so those ideologies are there. And then you create, again, you come back to this, this European nationalism, and then you will see from that emerging the ideas of race ingrained very much in it. So you see standard language ideologies, a connection to nationalism, race. Mm -hmm. And then you really look at, you know, disability from, because that's what we are in the business of kind of like, you know, looking at yeah. speech and language disability. It's in our you name, will, right? Yes, pathologizing yes. people. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And then you look at the creation of standards very much based on the ideal human being. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the ideal human being is a white European man, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and an able-bodied man yes. <laughs> or an abled man. So you see that ideologies of ableism and then disabilities linked to that. So in, in other ways that when you create this test, then obviously universities subscribe to it and these mm -hmm. ideologies are ingrained in it. And then, you know, clinicians buy it, universities buy it. So you will see a profit generation. So it simply put it, mm -hmm. you see these layers of capitalism then ingrained in that. And these are massive corporations that we are talking about. Oh, which yeah. I, Billion dollar corporations. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you read the article, you will know what mm -hmm. who we are talking about, right? Mm -hmm. It's there in the article. Yeah. Yeah. And that's. That's disappointing because we know that you can't separate, you can't divorce capitalism from racism. I love the article. I mean, I've said that, but <laughs> I love the article because it really ties these things together and makes it very plain for us to see that these are the things that we're contending with. And this is why our practice goes the way it does. And this is why we're learning the things we are. This is why we exclude certain people from programs. This is, you know, it's all right there in the article, in my opinion. It really highlights it the underlying yeah. And, and I want to go back to this idea of fluidity. And I, I really think that, I mean, this is not just for the, for the priests and actually even, you know, thinking about future, that whenever we try to kind of see this, this complexity in the way people speak, which in a way that we don't understand, mm -hmm. this fluidity or diverse forms of languaging, uh, that it's natural for someone to, I mean, it's probably, it's, it's, I think it's, as someone who comes from India, to us, it's accepting that, you know, multiple forms of diversity in languaging exist. It's just acceptance mm -hmm. of that. But I think at that, like for a, for, from a European sense, who we were quite used to that hom homogeneity or ignoring the diversity, it was a way to make sense of them to put this into a standard form and then impose it on to other people, right? So so that's why I just say that, I don't know, used to say that any kind of standardization requires a lot of neatness. And mm -hmm. cleanliness, you know, I mean, I'm not saying cleanliness, I, I know it is a loaded word, but, mm -hmm. but it requires order and structure and it doesn't like anything that is messy or, you know, complex and, you know, yep. so let the diversity be, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what a standardized testing is actually doing, that it creates a set of standards in language or cognition and say, okay, there is phonological skill or whatever you want to measure vocabulary it comes from what the researcher or whoever construct the test thing should be the standard mm -hmm. and then measures it against you know um it against uh, their standards and say okay i am deficient in certain aspects because it doesn't have the capacity to capture the incredible complexity that or understand how incredibly complex how my languaging is right yeah and and and, and that could be true for um, you know, people who speak Black English or people who speak another language or people who's, who are disabled, even their languaging is incredibly complex and beautiful, cannot see the, the complexity and beauty in it. And that's the unfortunate stage, right, state. And I think the question for speech and language therapist is that I understand that, you know, your profession requires you to because standardized testing is the bedrock of mm -hmm. a lot of what we do. But how can we understand these issues in a much more complex and critical way and how can we subvert the system? Yeah, we have an over-reliance also in the United States on this quote-unquote evidence-based practice, Correct. which is good, but then is also bad because it erases many of these minoritized groups or these marginalized groups that we're discussing. Those who don't get to be included in the data 
are the ones that we're erasing from this quote unquote evidence-based practice. And when we kind of center this idea that evidence is king, we're going back to that reinforcing of standardization. And this is the way it's supposed to be. And this is the only way. And we really need the qualitative data in order to incorporate diverse voices and perspectives and lived experiences. But we're essentially, from what I see in the profession here, we uphold quantitative as much more valuable, much more legitimate than qualitative data. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what we need is qualitative, but also critical methods and understanding of what it is to be critical. And critical doesn't mean that we're just simply critiquing it, but it has Mm -hmm. its own tradition and a lot of it is rooted in Black feminist thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, So understanding that where that research comes from and why has it, uh, you know, given prioritized in a way it has prioritized because a lot of these what we call as evidence is frankly... Mm -hmm comes from what I just described as you know, standardized testing. Like even yep. when we look at external evidence, internal evidence, or uh, family values, these are the three pillars of evidence-based practice, the way we study in speech and language therapy. And uh, that external evidence comes purely from standardization. To be honest, is white researchers conceptualizing it and then kind of measuring the how the other, you mm-hmm. know, the minoritized mm-hmm. other should perform, right? And, uh, and then obviously we don't actually perform um, based on that standard and then we are sent for remediation whatever yeah. we are sent for so we have all kinds of issues of over representation in the system um, in, the, in the, our children so that standardization is really really linked to how evidence is constructed and now to counter that we need to consistently build what we call the qualitative research but from a critical decolonial mm-hmm. tradition that's what yes. we yeah. Yes, definitely. And we talked a little bit about groups that go of, of white researchers who go into plant programs and then put out these papers and things like that. And that centers the white lens. This is all like that mainstream gaze that's looking at how other people are, you know, the quote unquote other is using language. One of the things that I have issue with there, especially with the global south, is that what we're doing really is going in and then benefiting from this quote unquote savior work that we're doing. Correct. For this group, you know, now I get five articles out of this and I can tell you how they over there are performing and then we can show you how it's, you know, how it deviates from whatever standard we've set. Correct. And uh, in a fancy way, I can call, say that that is epistemological violence. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of misinterpreted. So it's FIFO, fly in, fly out. So you go fly into a country and come back and then you publish. And it's kind of misinterpreting um, and castigating the other as deficient. You know, mm-hmm. and so therefore you're actually kind of epistemologically by from from a knowledge production or a creation perspective, you're misrepresenting, misinterpreting, you know, everything that you know everything. about that that the other, the marginalized. And then you are actually castigating them as deficient, which is kind of like an extension of the violence that we see from colonial mm-hmm. times. So it's a very neo-colonial way of of looking at uh, looking at evidence. So that we have to, you know, kind of really fight against and critique that. But the other thing that I'm also increasingly seeing is that um, because there is increased conversation around, you know, diversity inclusion in speech and language therapy or pathology in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, there is this kind of like, you know, work around or let us be culturally competent now. And that is completely uncritically implemented into the into the way as well so into the profession so that is something that this new emergence of researchers looking at culturally um you know responsive or competent services is pretty much uh implementing um the white standard language ideology unknowingly or knowingly i don't know yeah and they (laughs) double down i mean i've I've even called out asha about this in my (laughs) My social media and they will literally double down on this like cultural competence idea and i'm like by definition competence has an endpoint you know like it's the idea that i have arrived at adequately and i know enough to mm. do this work and i don't think any of us ever know enough about other cultures yeah. that we don't live and experience in our you know in our own personal walk in life yeah. so i can never stop learning about other cultures i can never stop working to sustain other cultures rather than simply you know Oh, I know enough yeah. so I can I can pathologize them effectively with you know. And um I don't know if Asha has like a lot of like promotional materials that they've they've already invested in this cultural competence and therefore cannot change their language because I'm like, yeah. what is it about this that you're so stuck to? Because that's a misnomer. It's way off and it's promoting a lot of negative outcomes for our profession. 
that that's the thing right like i mean if you are if you are economically invested in it and then mm-hmm. if you can't if you really can't ideologically um you know you're ideologically deficient mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly morally corrupt then then you will go with your economic interest as opposed to your moral kind of like obligations yeah. my problem with the cultural competence i think it needs to be completely abolished abandoned because yes. it's really really um such an outdated idea that mm-hmm. most of the time who wants to be competent it's mm. mostly 99% white researchers yep. so by by 99% white clinicians or white researchers who wants to be competent culturally in our field we are acknowledging that by default that is the standard in our field mm-hmm. because the, they wants to go and study the other you know the mm-hmm. non the marginalized you know and yeah. and And they're just doing a service to us. Yeah. They are, yeah, because they they're are. being so kind by yeah, taking a moment to invest in my culture. Yes, and 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 culture is therefore when they study. I mean, there is a cultural competence checklist or something that mm-hmm. I used to download from Asha website. I don't know if they still have it, but I do have a copy I'm that sure I, I can show. Yeah, if you really look at it, it's actually looking at maybe certain aspects of. of i i don't want to say culture but let's say race ethnicity or language mm-hmm. for culture is in race culture i mean it's yeah. much more complex than that right and it evolves and they evolve and culture is dynamic and evolving every day i would say with the influence so, of technology yeah. with the interaction between movement between people it's evolving every day so how can you capture anything that is so it's like the standard language ideology you need to capture it to understand it so so you you want to treat it as something that is fossilized and stagnant whereas mm-hmm. culture is more dynamic and evolving um yeah. and and that's a very liberal perspective like on our outside it's a very nice liberal perspective mm-hmm. that you know or you or they want to go and study that's really nice but mm-hmm. that's when you need a critical eye there well hang on a minute you know hang on a minute well well it's a nice liberal multicultural position to take but what is actually happening here is that you treat culture of the other as homogenous stagnant and fossilized and yeah, that and it gives you permission to check off that you did this and to take the did this good deed yes. now you're yeah. finished and you can carry on with and you can, and then then you achieve the competent the required competency i mean that's mm-hmm. what a multicultural state um an organization a professional organization needs from you because you know as long as you have the necessary training of two hours tick the box then more and that's that's performative diversity yeah and we look yeah. good because we're saying this is what we believe in but we're yes. not actually invested in what we're saying we believe in exactly and and i think and and the sad bit is that individuals who are marginalized with disabilities are at the receiving end of all of this service delivery because of this inaction because of absolute non commitment towards equitable service delivery in the way culturally responsive or culturally sustaining um where uh, you know service delivery um should be practiced and there's no understanding of that in the way profession is practiced right now um so because of that the the the, the clients are at the receiving end i mean the minoritized one yeah. um and i always I always it's kind of like fascinates me that how long did we fight for having mandatory courses on multiculturalism i mean we are not yeah. near critical but even to start from multiculturalism and now i think asha has some mandatory kind of two hour training or, or some kind of professional yeah over 3 uh, years i believe yeah and uh, two hours and 3 years will definitely tell you everything yeah. you need to know about the, the global majority populations correct so if you <laughs> ask me one if you ask me one of the similarities of these three countries that i worked mm-hmm. two settler colonial state australia and the us mm-hmm. and one former and current colonial uh, state mm-hmm. the uk i would say precisely this that they're not interested they're not interested and there are professional standards so much of professional standards imposed on minoritized and bilingual slts that you have to meet um for safeguarding the clients mm-hmm. but at the same time these white researchers with like three words you know of spanish they can go and um so i mean if they're not three words but then you know there are people who don't even know that right so they can mm-hmm. go and actually practice and and it's really really kind of like putting i would actually say a lot of the times that i have personally seen how 
bad the service delivery has been. And culturally off base. I mean, when you come in with whatever cultural experience, your lived experience, it does not apply to the lived experiences of the people in this other place. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've lived in um, France for a while. I lived in Japan for a while. And yeah. the amount of cultural learning that it took and the work that it took just to kind of see how society works and what their practices are and how they differ from my own understanding of the world. Yeah. It's a lot of work and it took a lot of time. And I can't say, oh, I'm competent now in either of those cultures. I can only say that I have an understanding that's deeper than maybe some others where I haven't lived mm. or even visited. But I yeah. can't say now I could just go in and let them know what they need to do for any of their processes or any speech therapy or any of that. I can't do that. Yeah. And, and that's where that evidence should actually work because none of us are ever going to be competent in any of these. Right. And that's mm -hmm. where we need the family to be the authority of exactly culture. Right? Yeah. And, and instead, I see more like erasure of the parent role or the caregiver role and suggestions that they don't know what's best mm -hmm. for their family. And mm -hmm. clearly they're the expert. They know yeah. everything they need to know yeah. about the family. Yeah. Hiring. <laughs> so now I'm like, uh. <laughs> Now, we're, now that we're like thoroughly frustrated with <laughs> man. Um, so I want to know, how do you help your students improve their service delivery and understanding of historically marginalized groups? Yeah, I think something that is within my power as an educator is to educate uh, because I'm not a practicing clinician at the moment. Mm -hmm. I don't practice. I mean, I do give advice to families, but I don't practice. Um, I mean, I do have uh, my... Um, you know, previous uh, families that I have been in, in contact and they still talk to me, they still talk about some of the children who are now grown up and in the universities, you know, all of that. But I don't actively practice, but I keep in touch with them to, you know, hear some of the challenges, mm -hmm. which is quite useful also in your teaching and the way you think about, uh, you know, our service delivery. Um, so I'm a researcher, I am an educator. So I can get frustrated with professional organizations, but something that is within my power is how can I impart this knowledge into the curriculum? And that can be a fight at times because in the U.S., you know, you have a little bit more freedom as an educator to towards the well, curriculum. Well, we used to, <laughs> but <laughs> that, not in certain yes. states and not in this current movement that we're right. having against anything we say. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. You're reminding yeah. me of, yeah, some of, but um, I'm just saying if you still live in New York or, you know, mm -hmm. in somewhere, somewhere in a metropolitan, I think, or in, um, you still have some hope, right? I mean, I think mm -hmm. we all kind of still live in that hope that we can actually, universities are still the last place for us to kind of like, you know, think about and dream about and, you know, make that change. I mean, I hope. So I feel there is that, there is that freedom there in the US a little bit more. In the UK, because the, the curriculum, the, the degrees are very much tightly controlled and there's a tight, um, you know, kind of checks and balances here. So it, it requires a little bit more effort here in terms of tweaking what you want to teach. So I did create a new module, you know, mm -hmm. on culturally sustaining and decolonization practices in speech and language therapy. And this is something that I really love because it's something that I really created from scratch. I really mm -hmm. put a lot of effort into creating the material. And um, I teach that now. And it's an offer. I only offer it as an option module. And it was not something that, you know, it was not a top-down decision. It was my own decision to offer it as an option mm -hmm. module. Because I really wanted to experiment with it in the first few years. Because I really wanted all these students who are interested to come and join. And then and slowly yeah. see how that transition is. Um, I ran it for a year. An early version of this module was implemented at another university previously but this is the module that that has a lot more criticality critical thinking and critical theories and decolonial theories incorporated into it um and i can say that what i have experienced um in the last year is something beautiful that they're amazing in the classroom they get it most of them they get it mm -hmm. and they also understand they come with their real life expectations because they are learning these theories they're learning the problem you know we problematize standard language testing and you know everything that they understand that these are these are very ideologically and socially constructed these are not you know anything kind of like yeah. biologically determined reality they understand that but then they also have to get into the real world and perform yeah. there because the real world is very much structured for someone who follows a standard way of working right i mean mm -hmm. they can function a little bit more now if you are a bit of a uh, you know out of a box thinker or a rebel thinker the real world is going to be quite harsh mm -hmm. for you or on you 
Um, so a lot of my students have recognized the learning that has happened there and how powerful it has been. And as an educator, I could not be more proud you know, of them. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, they've also said that it, it has been challenging. Now, one thing they're all trying to incorporate is that, yes, they are in a system. They have to do some kind of standardized testing or they have to report it, write the report in a certain way, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the space that they create for their for the for the children that they work with is is a private space between them and the child mm -hmm. and the family and that's where a lot of subversion can happen now in the uk it's a little bit tricky because then the the, the traditional way the the way intervention is offered is very rare because it's like the national health service that you it, it's like a medical model right you know you if you're lucky you get monthly one therapy sessions like mm -hmm. you get a pill every month you know yeah. so it's, mm -hmm. it's like that but even then that you know the students have created that and i have especially one student i've been i've been in touch with recently have been really encouraged to look at way the way some of the service delivery is set up in the system and and try and implement some of the decolonial ways of you know how we center decenter these ideas of, of clinician to more like a co-learner you know mm -hmm. you learn about language from your client then you impose your ideas and you know goals onto the family. So those things are, are happening. So I would say as an educator, that is the dreaming space. That is where mm -hmm. I think change can happen. That's what I believe. Yeah. In. It's encouraging to see future clinicians learning to question the systems that are already at play. Um, it's discouraging when I see that a lot of people are still stuck in the this is how it's always been done and this is how we'll do it because... <clears throat> this is the right way, you know? So yeah, I see moments and like pockets of like hope in the same way that you're talking about. But again, in the US right now, because there's such an assault on institutions of higher learning, there are limits to what people can and cannot teach about. Teach. And I, yes. I say this from my lovely state of Texas and also um, um, the state of yeah. Florida that I follow also yes. with a lot of things. Um, there are a lot of assaults going on there. And it's really a, a, an attempt to quash anything that questions this mainstream narrative and this mainstream practice of imposing and oppressing certain beliefs and practices on everyone else. And yeah. that I believe is, is rooted in fear. I mean, I really believe yeah. it's rooted in fear of the increasing diversity in our country, the way in which we have paid attention to these things in the wake of a lot of the challenges we've had, you know, the, the state sanctioned killing of George Floyd and things of that nature created a movement and that movement has sparked a lot of fear in a lot of people here. I think if I taught this material in Florida or Texas, obviously I will lose my tenure and I'll be I will not be working there. You know, yeah. so that's mm -hmm. so, so there is a real danger in that. Mm -hmm. And I think tenure was created initially for those purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, you yep. know that for those kinds of kind of to protect you against precisely what we are talking right mm -hmm. against that kind of fascist uh, political. Um, but also, I think, yeah, I agree. There is a lot of fear among common people, and mm -hmm. there is this increasing diversity. I think there is conversation of by by twenty fifty, the minoritized population is going to kind of like you know overtake the white. I mean, there is all kinds of statistics mm -hmm. being thrown around. But I, I also know that the politicians know exactly what we are doing. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. So they are not operating from a fear-based idea. They are actually exploiting that fear. But at the same time, I do think a lot of these politicians and these common people, um, this we see world over, the rise in nationalism, the rise in kind of extreme right-wing politics, normalizing this extreme right-wing politics, even mm -hmm. in India, even in the UK that you see in, in, in the US, um, you know, we see it in all over Europe now in Italy, places like that, mm -hmm. uh, that we see the rise in this kind of extreme nationalist movement. There are lots of common ideological threats that we can actually link that back to the rise in economic inequality. Mm -hmm. But also they all all talk about a glorified past. Yes. They all talk about a, a golden past. And mm -hmm. when we really think about it was golden for who, you know, yeah, who exactly. was it golden for? Like, you know, and, and that's when this a lot of these critical theories would talk about the history the yeah. history of slavery, the history of caste or history of race um, and the history of conquering and colonialism. And that conversation is very uncomfortable. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable because, you know, from an American point of view, 
well, racism existed, slavery existed, that we just mm -hmm. we just got away with it. Now we're all good. You yeah. know, that's how the narrative operates. And and, and also, like an academic recently wrote, an academic at uh, Cambridge, that the stemming of the field, like, you know, the, 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 the medicine, the technology and, and engineering fields, where there, you don't require the kind of critical thinking that we require in liberal arts, in mm -hmm. humanities, you know. And so these degrees are being cut out. These are the places where critical theories, decolonial theories are being talked about. They, they are the ones. And anytime, now my previous employer, West Virginia University right now is having a big crisis. You may have read it. And I, and I, I actually think about it. Who are the people who will rise against it? Is the professors in history, the students in history, liberal arts, mm -hmm. humanities, you know, uh, the, the doctors and the engineers comes the last. Right? <laughs> yeah. you know? So, so and that, that is exactly what they want to eradicate. The, yeah. And in Florida too, the colleges, the tenure has been kind of like, you know, the, the board of governors and the, the tenured professors in liberal arts college has mm -hmm. been attacked, right? I mean, and, and that's what the critical thinking, they want to eliminate that. Yeah. And it, it's funny because you mentioned, I want to go back to what you were talking about, these different perspectives um, on our historical realities, you know, things that have happened and the fact that we like to erase other perspectives that are, you know, typically marginalized in our society. Um, when I was moving to Japan, um, just a quick aside, I spoke with someone who was there who was supporting our family in our move. My, my husband was in the military and we were, you know, planning. So we had a sponsor who would help us kind of get acclimated and before we left I asked about you know safety and things of that nature and she said oh it's wonderful it's like the U.S. in the 50s and I'm like I had a very different understanding <laughs> of like what this is going to be like I was thinking like that's not wonderful that's like, actually that's like a nightmare for me, me. <laughs> yeah like to me I'm like okay so hoses and dogs like I don't know what it is that you think you're drawing for me Correct. it's not a positive one and that's yeah. how she responded to me and when I got off the phone I was like yeah, I don't think we have the same, you know, sort of perspective or um, baseline for this time frame she's talking about. We don't. <laughs> and and that explains the lack of empathy and the ability to relate mm -hmm. from the other person's perspective of what it was. I mean, it's kind of generalizing if it was this was for me and it should have been mm -hmm. for everybody. And that's exactly the point when people try and talk about institutionalized racism or, or you know, historic inequalities. People are not going to believe in it because they that is not in their experience. So if, if it is not in their experience, it's not right. Yeah, it just didn't happen that way. It didn't happen, right? <laughs> and and, and that, that is something that I just... I just don't understand. It's something well, it's that wild. I think it's wild because wild, when yeah. we're in situations today, like let's say there's a, an accident or some event happens in the world, we recognize that the way we experience it in different parts of the world differ, right? We understand right. that if I wasn't the person in the accident, but I was a person watching the accident, I understand it differently. That we can totally process. But when we move it back and say, hey, this historical event, we all had different perspectives on that as well. No, that's not possible. Because mm -hmm. I learned it this way in my in my classroom, you know, this is what happened. <laughs> yes. So I want to know when in your educational or professional journey did you realize that your culture or your language was different from the quote unquote mainstream? Mm. Okay, that's a really good question. And people would think that that realization happened. I moved to after I moved to the West, but it isn't true. It happened back in India because mm -hmm. you know India being such a diverse place, um, you know everything. Every seven kilometers, your, your culture is different, your dialect is different. And in some way, I mean, if you're in a border state, you know, you have this amalgamation of multiple languages. So multilingualism tend to be really higher at border state. But every seven kilometers, at least your dialect, your food, your cuisine, your the dress, everything is different, right? Wow. And a, a lot of diversity. So when I first moved for my studies, now, before that, actually, I knew that I, I where I live, where I grew up, and then kind of like four, four to five kilometers closer to that, there was a community. And when I went to school, there were kids from that community who would come to the class and then they would speak a different Malayalam because I, I spoke Malayalam as my first language. And um, and this is the language I, um, I, I spoke at home. Um, so I did not understand the specific dialect that they were saying. And so mm -hmm. when I went and asked um, my mother and she said, you know, they... They came as traders from the neighboring state many hundred years ago. So their language is mixed with Tamil, which is another mm -hmm. South Indian language. And then it's kind of like formed fusion of like this hybrid variety of this Malayalam and Tamil and gave rise to that. 
So that that was kind of fascinating because I was so interested in language and I was really good at language compared to let's say math or anything. Um, mm -hmm. So um, so that was the first time I realized that like you know even you could be living in in a place where then you could have all these differences and you could be different still, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you could be this, could be considered as the same people, but, you know, it could be still be different. But I did not have all that theoretical understanding at that point because I was too young to understand anything. But, you know, that was the first time I would say. And then when I moved out of the of, of home and then I went to for my bachelor's, there it was a um, completely different experience because there were like five, seven languages spoken in that city. And I had to take one of those languages as part of my degree first year. And then you just have to learn from the scratch, from the alphabet. So that was another experience. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and I also saw that kind of experience in terms of the, the way in which how the standard English ideology works mm -hmm. um, and how people who could not speak English or and then as opposed to people who spoke urban English mm -hmm. uh, had bad differences and and it was quite interesting to to think about now if I look back and you know in the hindsight like think about those experiences and India being so colonized like you know if you know English you're so far ahead in that competitive you know environment right and who are these people who could speak English it's the it's the urban upper caste people of mm -hmm. resources, you know, uh, and I kind of um, and I'm privileged in that way too, right? So I mm -hmm. do deconstruct my privilege. So now I am I am kind of like you know very much aware of that privilege and the resources I had and that my family could send me for all these like you know mess educational experience or all the amazing experiences I had. It's because my family could afford a lot of those educational opportunities yeah. for me. Uh, as much as I worked hard. So I don't believe in this kind of like this meritocracy kind of debate that mm -hmm. goes in the United States. I can see firsthand in India, the institutionalized casteism and how that, you know, is kind of um, devaluing the knowledge of, of, of people uh, who are outside the system and who do not provide them with opportunities. So so there is that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I think from a massive, massive, kind of like difference, um, you know, that I felt I felt othered was obviously the point when I landed in in Australia for the first time. Uh, and then you see everything is different. But mm -hmm. then you're also suddenly in a program where you're surrounded by very much Eurocentric ways of conceptualizing and training, research training. So it was at that point, I think, beginning of my PhD, I would say that it was as much as, I mean, it was a wonderful experience. I had very you know, really good supervisors. But I think as any people of color can relate, getting that training, you know, from in a white institution, how that would feel like, you know, how yeah. that is. So I think although I had all these experiences back home, it was still my country. But mm -hmm. then the, the, the moment I landed in Australia and went to another in higher education institute and this being a settler colonial country having very much tight eurocentric standards you know you yeah that experience i think it was something that i had to look back and then deconstruct and decipher so i think it, yeah. i would say at the beginning of my phd and then um and it continued later on of course yeah i don't know yeah. that it stops at any point you get lots yeah. of reminders throughout life with this um <laughs> and i like that you talked about you know investigating your own privilege and i think that's yeah. part of the issue i have also with this notion of cultural competence is it doesn't necessarily turn the lens on the self and if right. we're not looking at our own intersectional advantages and disadvantages then we're right. really failing to serve anybody and in a similar way when i moved overseas for the first time i saw so many privileges that i just had there was no way for me to even understand that I was privileged in these ways yeah. when I arrived and was like, you know, I wanted certain things. I tried to order, um, I wanted some shoes and I was like, I don't like these colors. Can you get them in these other colors? And they were looking at me like, why would we order them specifically for you? You know, why would you get a special color? And they're like, no, this is the color that's available. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I like this, but I really would like it if this part was red and that part was, you know, and they're like, 
they're just looking at me and I'm kind of like, am I saying the words wrong in French? You know, am I speaking incorrectly? And it's like, no, you are way off base with what you're saying, you know? And I didn't realize how privileged, you know, how much I can get things made exactly how I want them, how everything is made to order the way I like it. Yes. Um, yeah. And that expectation to me was like, this is normal everywhere until right. I landed there and was like, Okay, so I'm doing the wrong thing. I clearly am uh, off base. I would also highlight that passport um, inequities there because, mm -hmm. like, the fact that you're able to free the free movement mm -hmm. that you are afforded to, exactly. it's not someone that can that has a passport from Iran or mm -hmm. or even India, for example, can actually move that freely, right? And some African and, nations as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. I mean, I think I think that is something that people forget. And and sometimes um, in early part, like, you know, this I experienced while, especially during my PhD, while going for conferences. And I mean, mm -hmm. I had to apply for visa for most of the countries and where my European friends could just go, you know, travel. Yeah. And they, sometimes they don't understand. They just sent me these things and plan things and invite me and they say, well, let's see there in two days. I'm like, no, I can't <laughs> get there in two days. Like, you know, yeah, it's, it's um, not reality. I, it's not, it's, it's not the reality, right? So... So I think it's it's important, you know, for people to recognize that if you are an immigrant, yes, you had certain advantages and resources that allowed you to mm -hmm. have that, you know, to, to immigrate to the country. Because if you did not have resources, obviously you couldn't afford that. But then once you land there, there is massive uh, inequities in multiple forms in terms of applying for grants, in terms of visas, in terms of passports, Um, you know, like, I know yeah. friends who are who could not visit their families during the pandemic or yeah, you know, even exactly. after the pandemic, right? Because of these inequities. So they are the ones it's it's hard to grapple with a lot of yeah. these. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. Um I definitely experienced privilege in the sense of when they identified where I was from. You yeah. know, a lot of people assumed I was from Africa. Yeah. The treatment was completely different than when they Correct. assumed yeah. I was from the US. Yeah. Um, service changed like instantaneously when they recognize oh you're from the u.s now yeah. i will work with you and i'll help you yeah. and i'll do all the you know so so a lot of those things if you don't have an ability to look at yourself and where you meet with advantages and where you can also support others in those advantages then you're not going to be competent in the work you're doing and i use that term facetiously because i don't believe in being competent um in terms of culture i don't think you can fully support people who are from other groups if you know you don't have that moment where you look at yourself and that ongoing process of studying how you fit into the world too yeah and i think that reflexivity and in from a critical perspective that hyper reflexivity is part of that mm -hmm. that you critique your own research or your own ways of seeing the world which obviously the other forms of evidence that you know in a, in a quantitative way that you don't mm -hmm. look at it that way you know yeah so that research or reflexivity, well, you might write limitations, but you will end your uh, yeah. <laughs> reflexivity there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that you're actually bringing, actually talking about your identity yeah. and deconstructing it, right? Yeah. So last question for you. How did you learn to embrace and celebrate those differences mm -hmm. during your journey? You know, it's funny that you asked me, you have that as a last question. I don't know if I celebrate, <laughs> like, you know, in the, sense okay. that I, in the traditional sense of celebration. Um, recently, my one of my closest friends' partner told her, because she was saying, you know, Vishnu is kind of, like, you know, he's 95% white women in the, in the field, and they need more gender diversity, which I make fun of. It's pretty much like they don't want lots of gay men in the field that just need yeah. more heterosexual white men, you know. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. um, anyway, this friend, particular uh, friend was talking about, you know, he's, he's, he's brown, he's, so it's kind of an unlikely thing for, for the field. Mm -hmm. He's a male, you know, mm -hmm. and then obviously that is, and then I'm an immigrant and, I, and I'm gay. So, mm -hmm. so he said, oh, he's, he's a unicorn, he's a true unicorn. And that's when I really <laughs> started thinking about my identities in that way and mm -hmm. because I know about all these identities and I know for a long time I kind of grappled with it um, mm -hmm. because when I go back to India um, I also have certain sense of 
cultural kind of like you know adjustment and all of that like you live, of course and then you're never here you're never you know you don't belong here fully mm-hmm. so you are like in this fluid state you know completely in between in in a in a between space of liminal space right and which is okay which is a beautiful space to celebrate mm-hmm. and embrace and i think that is what i started because if you are in that hybrid fluid state you're constantly kind of discovering something about yourself through other people sometimes too so so initially it was quite um, you know i didn't want to change certain parts of me you know in the beginning mm-hmm. when i did not know that i think we all go through that phase yeah um, but then now i'm very comfortable in who i am and i'm grateful for all these identities uh, and the intersectional understanding that it has afforded me uh, if i had not grown up where i had grown up uh, i would not have the other knowledge if i was not uh, my sexuality is different mm-hmm. i would not have the in you know standpoint knowledge Exactly. Yeah. So, so all of that knowledge, I'm incredibly grateful for because because that truly informs my work and that truly informs my world knowledge at this point and your uh, contribution so to the field. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that is what I and I really think I honestly want you know minoritized scholars and clinicians. Um, I think we need to find ways and communities that celebrates us. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know there are no outlets specifically going to reach out for like you know reaching out and celebrate we need to create those opportunities recently i was just looking at um, asha's um, you know um, some kind of um, lgbtq awareness month or something and I, mm-hmm. i was looking at who is creating all these posts and then then even there it's all white gay men being yeah. represented you know yeah. I hardly saw there were like yeah. maybe one white woman and or two yeah. white women. But You're not going to see representation. Gay people there or or other minority groups. So so I was wondering why is that even in a supposedly inclusive space? Mm-hmm. Which is why are we being excluded there? Right? Yeah. And and that raises a lot of questions. So I think we need to create that space for ourselves in celebrating. and the other thing i will say that we need to trust our knowledge because often times that even from a cultural competent point of view that mm-hmm. we are actually you know a lot of the times a lot of students who get enrolled or ask me questions are from minoritized backgrounds they actually mm-hmm. reach out and say hey can we take this module or can i we have this question and how do you address it so they yeah. are the ones who are actually and then when you when you actually give them the knowledge it's mostly articles written from a bilingual standpoint by white researchers mm-hmm. they're subscribing to a knowledge that they need but from a white but then i started telling them now that that knowledge needs to be critiqued and celebrate your intersectional understanding when exactly. you read the guide yeah. because you bring more awareness uh, from from your body from your standpoint understanding mm-hmm. from your standpoint epistemology so trust in that you know so yeah. i think that's what we need to think about and creating that confidence and and celebrating our knowledge and lived experience you know yeah definitely yeah. when you go through educational programs that center whiteness in the way that these do from my perspective you either become a person who reinforces those notions mm. and supports it and says everyone else needs to conform the way that i did or needs to assimilate how i did so that they can mm. be successful or you yeah. kind of become this disruptor I'm yeah. wondering like which path did I pick? Okay. It's probably not a question. But <laughs> you either become this person who's who supports mm-hmm. it or who disrupts it and questions it. And we have to we have to foster that. And so what you're saying about the way you're encouraging your students is very important because it can be very easy to minimize those aspects of yourself because they don't speak to what that majority voice says about yes. who you yes. are and what you should be and totally totally and that's what i did for many um i try I, it was not a fitting in or anything i mm-hmm. i i didn't have any problem fitting in my struggle was to and i was skeptical of all this knowledge i was consuming but i didn't have mm-hmm. a vocabulary i didn't have exactly. a theoretical understanding to put that into i knew this was wrong and i think when i discovered my community i wanted to say i mean you know mm-hmm. community in in the in the old way it's not i mean it's like people that you relate to and then you started reading really and you started reading others you know from yeah. there it's that theory that comes from flesh you know yeah. it's a, it's is that real knowledge and and that's when you really related everything to so i think it's really really important and unfortunately 
because I know that I'm the only one who talks about that in, in my university and mm -hmm. also probably in the whole of the UK, there are very few people, right? And mm -hmm. that's a, a lot of people. Richard, so how many minoritized faculty can afford to speak like that? Exactly. And are there in the, in the higher education or yeah. in, as, as a clinicians? And that's the question that we need to have. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I'm rogue out here not working with <laughs> because I mean it's a, it's a strategy as well. So it's like I get a lot of people asking, "When are you going to do this?" and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm okay. I'm good with me. Um, you know, doing my own thing because I'd rather be able to have my voice and to, you know, that's that's an important part of our identity as well, and an important part of our activism is like you have to have your voice. And if you don't yes. have that, yeah. you don't have much else, you know. So yeah, I I'm with you 100%. Thank you for being here and taking time to do this. Uh, no, thank you. Thanks to you for creating this platform. It's amazing to see minoritized voices, black voices being amplified. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to kind of contribute to that uh, platform. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Culture We Speak. We appreciate your support. If you enjoy our content, please hit that five-star rating and don't forget to subscribe for more content and exciting updates. 